0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> it is interesting to note how your understanding of Scripture evolves over the course of a lifetime. Sometimes with the help of Bible scholarship, sometimes by just paying more attention to what the text actually says. For example, when I was a freshman at the University of Arizona, particularly on those days when I felt challenged or alone or afraid, I would sometimes gaze up at Mount Lemmon, and the words of today's psalm, Psalm 121, would come to mind. Of course, I couldn't remember all of it, I remembered the first line, which was, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. Now you will notice at once that what I was recalling in those ancient days was the translation of the King James Bible. I took that first line as a declaration, meaning the hills are the place from which my help will come. Or at least that is what I thought the psalmist apparently thought about his own life. Now, we know about this psalm that it was apparently intended to comfort those making the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, which is relatively high terrain in Israel. It is described as a song of ascent. So maybe it was appropriate for me, too, as I was beginning my own journey into adulthood, trying to... Ascend my way through an intimidating academic experience. However, it was never quite clear to me why I should think that my help or your help should come from the hills. Of course, I remembered that people have had certain mountaintop experiences. Most of us have had those at one time or another, perhaps at church camp, maybe on a hike out in nature, or maybe on a pilgrimage. Maybe to the top of Mount Tabor in Israel where the Transfiguration occurred. So I thought, well, okay, maybe my help really will come from the hills. But today, upon closer examination, I see that the new Revised Standard Version of the Bible has changed what I understood as a declaration into a question. For it now reads, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? But in both versions, the next verse is essentially the same. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. In other words, our help comes from outside of ourselves. Maybe this is a good point from which to begin a reflection on what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. I think we live in a propitious time for understanding the gospel reading today in a new and better way. For all around us, there seems to be chaos and confusion politically, disappointment and frustration in the workplace, a sense that many people are living unfulfilled lives And a growing recognition that intellectualism will not save us, goodwill will not save us, even access to power and money will not save us. All of it seems to get blocked by some sort of equal and opposite reaction. It makes me wonder if maybe all of life really is governed by the law of physics. I don't know about that, but I do know that most of us see clearly that we cannot save ourselves or even help ourselves very much sometimes, which explains in part why we petition God in today's collect saying, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word. In fact, the reading from Romans reinforces our understanding that the promises of God are grounded in God's grace and not in adherence to the law. Indeed, I think there's hardly a more attractive notion in all the Bible than the last words we read today from Romans. Words referring to Abraham in the presence of the God in whom he believed. And these are the words that I just think are magical. It's a reference to a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Giving life to the dead and calling into existence the things that do not exist strike me as an almost perfect description of what it means to be born again. And I submit to you that never before has the world been filled with so much yearning for such change. I believe that change will require lots of us to be born again from above. Now, not so coincidentally, we are again in the Lenten season, which at the very least prompts serious self-reflection in each of us. In response to the familiar call to repentance, in our quiet moments we see the truth of things. Things like, in the year that has passed since the last Lenten season, we haven't changed all that much. We note some change, yes, But way down deep inside of us, our early formation, whatever it was, still creates an inner disposition to react to every external stimulus, every temptation, every exciting vision, indeed everything, in much the same way as the year before. All too often, the way we react is a product of our cultural orientation as much as it is a product of our religious understanding. And in moments like these, I ask myself, what would it take for me to make a significant change away from my culturally induced perspectives, assumptions, and choices? I comment on our cultural orientation because, you see, I am personally not very fond of American culture right now, And I think Lent is a good time to reflect on what is happening all around us. If I start by surveying the scene of American history, I can easily say that I am, I am, I'll put emphasis on am, I am grateful for the finest traditions of American life, those that promote and celebrate a strong commitment to the freedoms, purposes, and hopes upon which this blessed country was founded. I am even more grateful for my religious heritage, my personal experience of the living Christ, my formation in seminary, my daily opportunity to be a witness for Christ, and the occasions on which I can see in the eyes of my fellow believers true conversion and commitment to the Christian way. I can also see the impact of our our religious heritage on our natural history, but— In the present era, I believe an informed religious perspective is being drowned out by the anger of the religiously ignorant among our fellow citizens. And I'm truly saddened for our American culture. In it, a religious orientation seems increasingly irrelevant. Or maybe I should just say a serious commitment to religious understanding is lacking. Moreover, in countless people, anti-intellectualism and anti-institutionalism have overcome what I believe is a natural curiosity about the nature and character of God. And, well, pursuing religious understanding through an extended period of religious education apparently strikes some people as just too much trouble. I make these observations as a lament, to be sure, because we have such a stirring vision for the world. The vision, of course, is of an age of friendship, an age of peace, a spirit of forgiveness, a spirit of service, and a witness for God's desire for justice in the world. But this requires people to move out of their comfort zones. Indeed, remembering last week's gospel about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, maybe our vision requires all of us to go into the wilderness, either in nature or perhaps into one of our own making, and, like Jesus, face our own temptations. In the gospel reading last week, Jesus had just experienced at his baptism a new sense of what was possible in his life, with the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Something of that has happened to many of us here as well. The text says that Jesus was full of the Spirit. The Spirit then led him into the wilderness, and with this Spirit, Jesus faced temptation to power. Three very specific temptations were presented to him by the tempter. And you remember them well, I'm sure. To command the transformation of stones into bread. To take authority over the kingdoms of the world. And to invoke the protection of the angels. If we think seriously about it, we can relate to these temptations, can't we? because, indeed, it often seems we are all born with the temptation to power. Whatever you hold about original sin, whatever you believe about original sin, the tendency toward self-regarding behavior that is present even at birth, coupled with the culturally induced temptations to power, make the temptation of the wilderness story ever present in our own lives even among us here at church. For example, people want to call on God to end hunger. Some people want God to grant the church authority over the kingdoms of the world. And in any event, people want us to command the angels to protect us. Now, maybe these expectations are not talked about out loud very often, But part of the hope that many people bring to church involves a hope that the church and its leaders will accomplish these things. And some people really do assume that clergy have a special relationship with God who in fact can do all these things. But note, carefully note, even Jesus had to go into the wilderness to confront his temptations to power and to trust God for the guidance he would need in his ministry. So I think we do too. And I think I should alert you to something about the wilderness experience. In a sense, once you go into the wilderness, you can never really leave it, because the experience there will hold your soul transfixed. And it is a beautiful thing, because the clarity... Achieved in the wilderness will sustain you through the vulnerability we all have in what is essentially the church's countercultural posture. Every day we face the same temptations Jesus faced, and with God's help, we say no. Because our witness must not be sabotaged by the will to power and influence. So, I recommend the wilderness experience to you and to everyone, including the hunger part. Among other things, admit your hunger for what you need here. Then, after your wilderness experience, as many of us say each Sunday, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God. What was required of Jesus is required of us. There will be differences in the details of your lives, but not differences in the spirit. Will all of this change you? Probably. At least some people will notice things. For example, Kathleen Norris is a well-known poet and essayist who was raised in the Congregational Church, but she drifted away from the church as a young adult. After graduating from college, she moved to New York City where her friends were artists and intellectuals. When her grandmother died, Kathleen inherited a house and a farm in South Dakota She astonished her friends by moving to South Dakota and living in her grandmother's house. There, living among her grandmother's things, she began attending her grandmother's church. She traces her conversion a couple of years later to a chance visit to a Benedictine monastery where she had gone to hear an author lecture Somehow in that setting, the spirit stirred powerfully within her and she began a real journey of faith. If her friends had been surprised when she moved to South Dakota, they were positively appalled at her religious conversion. One friend asked, What is the matter with you? Have you had a lobotomy? Friends tried to argue with her. They tried to discourage her faith. Nevertheless, she stayed her course, and of her conversion, she says, Conversion is frightening to oneself and to others precisely because it can seem like a regression. One's adult certainty about the nature of the world is shaken, and this can feel like being sent back to square one. Gradually, however, one learns to discern the adult command Behind Jesus is saying, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Now, note the parallels between Kathleen's life and that of Nicodemus in today's Gospel reading. Both were members of the elite, privileged groups. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Kathleen Norris was a member of the Intelligentsia. Both were drawn to Jesus, Nicodemus was drawn by Jesus' reputation and character. Kathleen Norris was drawn by the remnants of her childhood faith and by her connections to her grandmother's life. Both came to Jesus in spite of the opposition of friends. Nicodemus came at night so that his friends might not discover his spiritual probing. Kathleen Norris came to faith more openly and endured criticism and harsh words for her decision. But both, both learned that religious conversion is like unto a birth. I urge you to think on these things during this Lenten season and be open to being born again from above for any who need it and choose it. It will transform you and our life together. Then, in turn, we will together be transforming agents in the world around us. And that will be a life worth living. Amen.